and that was some Backstreet Boys to start your morning. I want it that way, and I want it this way. I want 88.7 FM, Radio Hofstra University, and guess what? I'm going to get it because we're broadcasting live from the Richard Phillip Cavalera Studio South for the Thursday edition of Hofstra's Morning Wake Up Call where we're talking Long Island life, national news, and international issues. I'm your producer, Danny DiCrescenzo, joined by Alexa Servo and our reporter, Lauren Ballinger. Today, we'll be discussing the Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida, endemic COVID, and wedding costs. They are going through the roof. Alexa, Lauren, how are you guys doing this morning? I'm doing pretty well. I'm very energetic today. So. Oh, I can I can tell. What's, what's that supposed to mean, You Danny? sound very, you know, pert. I'm... I mean, okay, but like I just have like a lot of energy this morning. I don't know why, but it's fine. How about you, Lauren? I'm good. I got the Wordle in five today, so. Ooh. Oh, I didn't do that Bravo. yet. Bravo. Thank you, thank you. I still got to try that. I did it in six yesterday. I was nice. kind of disappointed in myself. It's a little scary when you get to six. It is scary, but something kicks in and you're like, yeah, I'm going to get this, the and then you get it. The few, though, when you get six, it's like, phew. It's kind of yes. condescending. It is a little condescending. <laughs> like, it took you six tries? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Phew. Like, it's like a sarcastic sigh of relief. You know yeah. It took me a while. It was month, I think. Month took me a while oh. the other day. But I got sweet really fast. Nice. In like four tries. Nice. Well, aside from bragging about Wordle, we have two live interviews today about very important topics. The first of which being the aforementioned Don't Say Gay Bill. It's one of the biggest stories in the news, especially among Gen Z. It passed in Florida Senate. It would limit what schools could teach students about gender expression and sexuality, allowing for parents to sue schools and teachers that do so, hence the don't say gay moniker. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has expressed support for the bill, but it remains unclear if he will sign it when it does reach his desk soon. Needless to say, this is a very controversial bill with LGBTQ advocates arguing that the bill will have negative consequences for both educators and students alike. And to further break this down, on the air now is Eileen A. Duvall, a professor of labor history at Cornell University, as well as a member of Cornell's Feminist, Gender, and Sexuality Studies program. Professor Duvall, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Well, thank you for having me, Danny. So our first question for you, Professor, from the perspective of educators, what are some of the consequences you fear could arise if the bill's passed? I think um, this bill and many others where states and school boards are attempting to limit what topics teachers can talk about are really hard for educators because it means that teachers are going to have to constantly think about, is this something I can talk about? And especially when you're dealing with a, a classroom full of, of young, very young people, uh, the Don't Say Gay Bill is supposedly covering just kindergarten through third grade, I believe it is. You, know, you have to think fast and respond to what's happening among your students. And if you have to stop and think, oh, if I tell those students not to tease somebody because they have two moms or two dads, am I going to be sued under this bill? And that's a really um, limiting and terrifying picture for teachers to have to look at. So how would a classroom operating under the rules of the Don't Say Gay bill impact students' academic development, both LGBTQ and non-LGBTQ? Well, I don't think we, we quite know yet. And I think part of this 
issue has to do with, frankly, it comes out of the pandemic, and parents were supposedly so glad that they weren't going to have to teach their students anymore, and they realized uh, what teachers know and how teachers know how to teach and that they actually do a lot of work. They don't just sit and watch your kids learn, right? They actively teach them things. And I think one of the problems here is that this goes against that. This is saying that people on the outside of schools know much better than teachers do what to teach when and how to teach different issues that come up in the classroom. So if it really is limited just to up to third grade, you know, will it impact the academic progress? Probably not, but the fact is if if there are things you can't talk about in a classroom, that's going to limit all sorts of things. And a good example of that, all of the laws that have been passed against what they keep trying to call critical race theory, even though that's not what it is, are basically telling teachers not to teach the true history of our country and not to talk about racism in America. And that will affect uh, students' academic um, development for a long time. And the Don't Say Gay bill is just another version of that. It's parents and people and more people in the community saying, oh, there are some things we don't want uh, children to hear about. And here's another one that's added to the list. What are teachers supposed to say? Pretty soon they won't feel like they can say anything. I'm glad you brought up critical race theory because that was going to be my next question. Uh, what do you make of this trend on the right of attacking what could be taught in schools, controlling what could be taught in schools, such as sexual orientation or what the people on the right Republicans call critical race theory? I, I think it's all pretty terrifying. Um, you know, the right talks a lot about um, the left saying that you know, people have to say the correct thing and do the correct thing. But this is this is much worse than that because, first of all, it's misapplying terms like critical race theory. Nobody teaches critical race theory in elementary school. I, I don't even totally understand what the technical critical race theory is, but I know it's something that lawyers talk about a lot in their academic work. I've read a few articles that are critical race theory, but most teachers in this country have not uh, studied critical race theory. They don't know what it is, and all they're trying to do is to teach the history of the United States, which is a racist history, a sexist history, and a heterosexist history. And all of these laws are going to limit their ability to talk about that and therefore to make the country better. Why do you think bills such as Don't Say Gay have been able to make it successfully to a governor's desk? I I think this is part of the, how do I want to say this? It, it's part of the increasing division and divisiveness in our politics today. And you've got Democrats and Republicans constantly attacking each other, and you've got right and left constantly attacking each other. And, 
you know, I think this is just part of that, the hysteria on the right that if they don't do something, you know, somehow the nation is going to fall apart and there's going to be some sort of huge crisis. And that's not true uh, because all of these things have been being taught in schools for a long time. We're just fine. We don't need to ban books. We don't need to say these are the topics you can't talk about in the classroom. We really need to trust educators who know what they're doing. And how could students, teachers, and advocates who oppose the bill ultimately prevent its siding, whether through activism or spreading awareness? What could they do to stop DeSantis from ultimately putting his pen to paper? <laughs> well, I, I think the students in Florida have been very impressive. There have been all sorts of um, organized activities and demonstrations and things. Students have gone to school boards and talked about these issues. Uh, and I think that's the strongest, um, the strongest method that people and especially students can use to fight against these kinds of things. Is there anything else you'd like to add about the prospect of this bill's passage and its potential impact? Um, I, I don't know that there's anything else I want to add. I guess the only thing I would say is we have to trust our educators and and know that they have our students' best interests in their uh, in their hearts and their minds, and we have to let them teach what and the way that they think is best for students. A very touching sentiment there for sure. Uh, Professor Duvall, thank you so much for joining us this morning to talk about this very serious issue. No problem. Thanks for having me, Danny. No problem. And once again, that was Eileen A. Duvall, professor of labor history at Cornell University, as well as a member of the university's feminist, gender, and sexuality studies program. We just talked about don't say gay. And Alexa, what are your thoughts on what Professor Duvall had to say? I think she made a couple good points. I definitely didn't think about um, when she, her response to the first question that you asked about uh, the consequences that could arise, um, and she brought up having some, like being able to defend kids who have parents that are the same gender if they have two moms or two dads. And that's honestly something that I didn't even think about because now, I mean, she's right. How are we going to be able to defend young kids who don't fully understand what's going on and then, like, Students who don't know, they, and they make fun of another student for parents that if they have two moms or two dads, they need to be educated on what that means. And I think that's it's kind of bad that that's not going to be able to happen. Yeah, exactly. And I just imagine, you know, the activity, you know, draw your family tree or whatever, and some kid draws a family tree and they happen to have two fathers or two mothers. The teacher has to make a game time decision. What are they going to do, right? Yeah. There's no this law would prevent an easy answer. And I think that it's a, like a bigger problem with that. And then in that sense is like, are the curriculums going to have to change? Are these teachers going to have to figure out new activities? Because are they going to, if they know that there's somebody in their, their class that has two moms or two dads, are they going to have to just change the assignment, make a new assignment? Are they going to have to learn to like go around it and make different, different uh, classwork decisions, and I think it, it affects a little bit more than we think it does.
it does and you see all this activism on TikTok and online with kids our age even younger alexa and it just you know hopefully their message is able to be heard and the politicians are seriously given pause before especially just i mean it's up to desantis now but hopefully he's given pause by this level of backlash we're seeing from the younger generations but that'll do it for our talk about don't say gay but we are moving on to the top international story in the world it's about ukraine and lauren ballinger our reporter will be here to talk about it lauren take it away hi everyone that was a really good uh conversation to start off with and then that was lgbtq rights domestically and now let's move on to them globally right now the thing that's on everyone's mind is ukraine at least a million people have reportedly fled ukraine to neighboring countries the exodus is to believe what believed to be one of the largest and the shortest amount of times since world war ii unfortunately for some leaving the situation in ukraine has not been easy Back in 2013, Russia adopted a law nicknamed the, quote, gay propaganda law, which forbade the dissemination of, quote, propaganda of non-traditional sexual relations to minors. The law itself turned into a national conversation on LGBTQ plus rights. Putin exploited the attention and used it to induce a culture war between Russia and the Ukraine. He painted Russia as a country based on traditional values and accused Ukraine of being lost to the will of human rights and adoptive of Western culture. In Ukraine's capital of Kiev, billboards went up saying, association with the EU means same-sex marriage. While the tension between Russia and Ukraine has an extensive history, LGBTQ rights are a large part of the modern conflict and conversation. That is no different when it comes to the refugee crisis at the Ukrainian border. Ukraine is currently prioritizing women and children, which is generally standard practice for an exodus such as this one. However, many transgender women and non-binary people still have identification records that are labeled with an M for male. This identification makes it so they're unable to leave on the basis that military authorities can still legally force them to join the Ukrainian army. While LGBTQ people have more freedom in Ukraine than in Russia, the process of changing one's gender on government documents and identification forms is long and complicated to begin with, and many that are fleeing don't have the luxury of time. But they do feel the pressure of it. Life is not necessarily easy for LGBTQ people in Ukraine. Gay marriage is still illegal, there's no legal protection against discrimination, and the Catholic Church, which views homosexuality as a sin, is widespread and influential in the Ukraine. One church leader from Ukraine even went so far as to say that the pandemic was a punishment for the global movement for gay rights. However, LGBTQ plus people still have some semblance of hope in Ukraine. Favorable opinion towards gay rights in Ukraine has increased in the last decade, and the current president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is seemingly supportive of LGBTQ rights. The same cannot be said for the Russian government. Not only did Putin's government pass the so-called gay propaganda law, but Putin himself has also publicly called gender fluidity, quote, a crime against humanity, and equated homosexuality with pedophilia. LGBTQ plus people have been reportedly included on lists made by Russian forces of groups made, quote, to be killed or sent to camps following a military occupation. Some LGBTQ people are staying to fight the war and ensure that the Russian government does not take away their few freedoms that they have. Others wish to flee out of harm's way, but are finding legal difficulty in doing so. 
LGBTQ plus support groups are forming in Eastern Europe to try and contact those still in Ukraine and support those wishing to leave. LGBTQ people are, unfortunately, not the only group of people being turned away at the Ukrainian border. There have been multiple reports of people of color, primarily students who are studying in Ukraine, being refused or forced to undergo a more complicated process in leaving. There are reports of people of color being sent to the back of the queue, being barred from boarding buses or trains leaving Ukraine, or being physically assaulted by officers. According to data obtained in 2019 from Ukraine's Ministry of Education and Science, there are approximately 80,000 international students studying in Ukraine from 158 different countries. The highest percentage of students come from India, approximately 23%. The president of the Poland-India Business Council, Rao Madakuri, visited Ukraine this past month and found 2,000 students stuck at the Medica Crossing. The Indian embassy since then has publicly encouraged Indian people not to use the Medica crossing. The hashtag Africans in Ukraine is being used on Twitter to spread awareness about the treatment of African people at the border. Many Nigerians attempting to leave Ukraine have reported being denied departure by Ukrainian forces. And one student, Adeyamo Adembole, told ABC News that he and a group of African students had been waiting for a train for nearly three days. They were told that only women and children were allowed to board, but then noticed a few Ukrainian men were allowed to board before them as well. Another student, Corinne Skye, told ABC News that she and her husband were asked by Ukrainian military officials to join a line for those traveling on foot, a line which, according to Skye, was made up of people of color. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Ukraine has acknowledged the hardships for the many international students trying to leave saying in a tweet, quote, We have established an emergency hotline for African, Asian, and other students wishing to leave Ukraine because of Russia's invasion. We're working intensively to ensure their safety and speed up their passage. Russia must stop its aggression, which affects us all. The harassment of refugees does not end once they find safe passage across the border. Attacks against refugees in Poland have been reported, with witnesses saying that right-wing extremists yelled xenophobic phrases at refugees and even allegedly assaulted them. Most Polish people have been welcoming to refugees. They've offered housing, meals, support, etc. However, this does not fully subtract from the xenophobic sentiments some face when arriving in Poland. While addressing the UN General Assembly, UN High Commissioner for the UN Refugee Agency, Filippo Grandi said, quote, I encourage governments to continue to maintain access to territory for all those fleeing. Ukrainians, of course, but also third country nationals living in Ukraine. People there to work and to study. At this critical juncture, there can be no discrimination against any person or any group. In my opinion, it's critical for any who wishes to flee the crisis in Ukraine to be able to do so, no matter their race, sexuality, gender expression, nationality, etc. The war between Ukraine and Russia is still ongoing, with many unsure where it will head next or where they will live next. Throughout any historical moment in time, oppressed groups have an even harder time finding freedom or evading harm. It's important that the global network of resources and people finds a way to lessen the hardships of marginalized groups in any way they can. 
Lauren, thank you so much for that report on a topic about this Ukrainian conflict that is not often discussed. You don't hear a lot about the refugees. You hear about the humanitarian corridors. You hear about these peace talks, but you don't actually hear about the people on the ground, the types of people, the groups of people on the ground. I thank you for bringing that to light. The Morning Waker Call still has plenty coming your way. Right after this, we have a story about COVID becoming an endemic, so don't go anywhere. WRHU has it all. My favorite song. That's right. The news I need to know. Long Island's largest radio news team. Newsline. Hofstra Pride Sports. What a time it is to be a member of the Hofstra Pride. It's all right here. WRHU. You've discovered Radio Hofstra University. Hofstra's morning wake-up call. Morning wake-up call. Our next story on the docket, Alexa has it for us. It's about what else but COVID-19. Alexa, take it away. So I'm hoping that this is going to be one of the last COVID-19 stories we do because I'm kind of hoping it phases out a Will bit. It, but uh, No, see, I know it won't be, but one can dream. Yeah. So... CDC officials say that it is increasingly likely that the coronavirus will never truly go away and instead simmer at low levels and rise in the winter. Even as cases of COVID-19 continue to fall nationwide, the head of the Center for Disease Control and Prevention says that the coronavirus is most likely here to stay and will begin to act similar to the flu. According to an NBC News tally, the U.S. is averaging 49,569 new COVID cases a day, a decrease of more than 54 percent over the past two weeks. COVID-related death numbers are also falling, now averaging 1,533 per day, a reduction of about a third over the past two weeks. Despite the positive COVID trend, CDC officials say it is increasingly likely that the coronavirus will never truly go away, but sit at low levels and rise in the winter, similarly to the flu. While the CDC says 90% of people in the U.S. can take off their masks now, Walensky said she can't guarantee that masks will be gone forever. That means they could one day make a comeback. She states, quote, I would say put your masks in a drawer, anticipate you may need them again, and hope that we don't. We may want to be more vigilant during some seasons, maybe during respiratory season if things ramped up. We would want to put on our masks again to protect both from flu and from COVID and from all other respiratory diseases. She also stated her uncertainty on whether or not people would need additional COVID booster shots over the next year. Well, then um, here. OK, so I'm just going to start off with a simple thought. If you really thought that COVID was just going to magically disappear, any not talking to you, Alexa, but just anyone, mm-hmm. you're a little naive because the bubonic plague that killed a third of Europe during the Middle Ages, it's still here. It's still around seven cases a year in the United States. So diseases just don't go away. I think people don't understand that. The only disease we've ever actually sent into retirement is smallpox. That's it. Everything else, every other disease we've ever encountered, still out there somewhere, lurking, ready to strike again. So as someone who was a naive little junior in high school who did believe, did believe that this was fully... Alexa. Danny, I can't deal with you this early in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) I fully, I'm not even going to lie, I fully was like, all right, two weeks, this is going to go away. You know, like, we got that two-week spring break where we were, we, we were told, like, all right, don't leave your house, don't go out with friends, but stay home for two weeks and watch movies, and people were making, like, whipped cream and, and stuff like that. So, 
obviously in my head, I had no reason to believe that it was going to go any longer than the two weeks that it did. So I firmly believe now, two and a half years later, clearly this is obviously never going away. Um, but I do think that this is the best case scenario at this point. Um, that, you know, I mean, we're not wearing masks right now. Uh, and that's kind of nice because that's something that two years ago we didn't even think of really, because once things got into full swing and we started wearing the masks, it was one of those things that became like second nature. So the fact that we're not even wearing them now is kind of crazy. And if she says that we might have to be wearing masks during certain seasons, I am okay with that because that means 75% of the time I won't have to wear a mask and 25% of the time I do, I'll take that over wearing a mask 100% of the time. Plus it'll help you protect against the flu, for example. It's not just COVID, it's other things. I think the problem isn't that COVID will continue to exist. It, the problem isn't even that COVID existed. The problem is that we have no, we had no defenses. It was a completely novel. They, that's why they called it the novel coronavirus. The only thing is we do have a vaccine or several of them. We have um, masks and we have good testing of a good testing regime in terms of just being able to buy tests now. And the antiviral pill is in development. So we have tools in our toolbox. The problem is we don't know if this disease is going to continue to mutate. I mean, Omicron just came out of out of left field. That was, it was like, wow, there's a new variant. And then two weeks yeah. later, oh my gosh, we're seeing case I loads. I remember that. that. That was like Christmas time that everybody was sick. Yeah. Omicron was like, yeah, I'm just going to make Delta like a joke. Like that, that scares me because this disease is still so rampant in parts of the world that are not adequately vaccinated such as yeah. the global south not to say that the, the variants necessarily come from those places but it's they are able to spread there because they're not adequately vaccinated they're not adequate resources and of course international conflict doesn't help the situation either right yeah so at least that wealthy countries are able to sustain a solid level of protection that's why we're seeing the de-escalation of the threat level and that's why i think by june will officially get that endemic status but the people the people out there they better just not believe this goes away because that's not how it works see i think the thing is is like even with um Om omicron omicron i don't know why i couldn't get that out um anyways omicron. i feel like yeah well yeah <laughs> so i feel like here when we talk about you know let's say just hofstra specifically right everybody was sick at the same exact time everyone was sick at christmas time right before right after and then there were it like went away i don't not i don't want to say went away but everybody was sick at the same time and then nobody was sick because it went through the it went through the population it was so, so contagious so fast that it got through everybody and that's so scary and that's like you said before the only thing that's really terrifying to me is that at any point like they announced they announced the new variant and then instantly within a week like everybody was sick so that's the only thing is it's so fast and it's so like you don't know um unpredictable is the word i was looking for it's extremely unpredictable at this point um but like i said before if we only have to wear masks for 25 percent of the year i just kind of hope that everybody understands that and follows that because really it's a little give and take if if we're not wearing masks for most of the year right now we're not wearing masks i'm extremely grateful that i don't have to wear a mask if as long if they told me to put a mask on right now because of health reasons then i would do it because that's what they're telling me to do. And I'm really just not looking forward to any other spread. So I'm just kind of hoping that people really do listen and they, they take the, the bad with the good. And they say, you know what? I was maskless for months and months now. And if they're telling me I need to wear a mask for 
this month because there's a possible new variant, then fine. And they listen to that, you know? Yeah. And I don't think the, there's ever going to be I, I really would struggle to comprehend if a government put in a state government or something put in a mandate. I don't think I think the mandates, they almost sunk a few governorships. I know they almost got Phil Murphy out of office because there were so many people just not happy about continued mask mandates, for example, in my home state of Jersey. So I don't think we're going to see mandates come back. I think we're going to see the CDC issue rec- recommendations regularly about, hey, yeah, if you live in this state during flu season or COVID season or wabbit season, whatever the season what? is, <laughs> yeah, whatever the season is, um, you got to mask up and it'll up, it's going to be up to people to listen. And the only, the problem is this, this pandemic so damaged the CDC's credibility among everybody, right? Yeah. I feel like it really took, they took a hit. So people are going to be like, the CDC said that, whatever. Like, and that's what I'm afraid of because just because the CDC says it doesn't make it right or wrong. It's just their guidance. And you, you have to look at the situation holistically. If you know people around you are getting sick, you should wear a mask. That's just common sense. Yeah. And the other thing too, Alexa, there are a lot of people, I'm willing to bet there are a lot of people in this country who got vaccinated and were like, I'm getting it once. Never going to get it again. The COVID vaccine. Probably. Yeah. There are a lot of one and doneers in the United States when it comes to vaccines. That's what I'm also afraid On of. the vaccine topic, though, I feel like after, I, I would say, you know, give it a few more months. But the big problem with the vaccine originally was that it was so fast and it came out so soon without an extreme amount of testing and people just started getting it. And I think now that it's been a long time, not a long, long time, but longer time since the first vaccine came out, that maybe people would be more willing to get it. That's the optimistic side of me because there has been more testing and and there has been more, you know, more people have gotten it and there's more studies on it now that maybe maybe the people who were kind of weary of it at first can be like, OK, maybe now maybe now I'll get it because they're they know more about it. So part of me says maybe that's the case. But I see what you're saying about the people who only want to do one and done. So fingers crossed that people continually just get the vaccine every year like the flu vaccine i mean then we're never going to see that such high vaccination rates because it was it was like an all in it together moment but hopefully people still make the right choices for their vaccination status and then covid could really be an endemic because we treat it like an endemic it's a yearly vaccine and maybe there'll be several that come out per year just like the yeah. flu but you never know but that'll do it for our discussion on covid after this we have a live interview about Biden's State of the Union, so don't go anywhere. Hofstra's morning wake-up call. Morning wake-up call. And we have returned after playing one of one of my favorite songs in general, Fortunate Son. It's, I feel like it's just overplayed sometimes. You hear it and you're like, this is not the vibe. That was quite the switch, Danny. You were yeah. like singing and dancing back here. Yeah, I love the song, but... But I feel like it's overplayed. You hear it, it's so iconic. But it has a specific vibe. It has a specific feeling to it, you know? I mean, maybe. It's synonymous with a certain era. I guess. You were vibing back here. Oh, I totally was. (laughs) But speaking of the United States, there was a State of the Union weird transition. But it's never too late. Yeah. Yeah. It's never too late to assess one of the most important political events in the United States and on the line now to discuss Biden's State of the Union further. We have an assistant professor of political science, international studies department at Georgia Southern University, Joshua Kennedy. Professor Kennedy, welcome to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call. Thank you. Good morning. How are you? 
And our first question for you, Professor Kennedy, thank you for joining us. What was your main takeaway from Biden's speech? You know, I think that the fact that he focused to begin with on the crisis in Ukraine was probably the strongest part of the speech. I think that was what I sort of took the most away from, that the administration is committed to standing with Ukraine. You know, he was very forceful about talking about defending. I believe he used the phrase every inch of NATO territory, that they are deploying troops to NATO territory to keep them there. Um, And I thought that that was the most forceful part of the speech, and that was where I took sort of the most away from it was the sort of administration's commitment with respect to this foreign policy crisis, because I think that's where the minds of a lot of uh, viewers were going to be inevitably. So Biden is firmly standing with the moderate wing of his party in many ways. What should progressive Democrats and Republicans do with that fact as the midterms approach and prices for things remain high? Well, for Republicans, they need to, and they are, going on the offensive. I mean, they are close enough in the House. They're very close in the House. And, of course, the Senate is split right down the middle, that they could conceivably win control of both chambers. And so with the parties that closely divided and that polarized, it makes just good electoral sense to sort of be on the offensive and harp on rising prices, harp on those kinds of things. For progressive Democrats, it's a little bit of a different um, sort of situation because – They need their party to succeed, not just their wing of the party. Obviously, they want to enlarge their wing of the party, but they need their whole party to succeed, and that includes some of the moderates. Now, one of the things that some of the progressives are doing is working to get more progressive candidates nominated, which can work in districts that are heavily blue, heavily Democratic, but you always run the risk that you might get someone nominated who is too progressive in what would be an otherwise winnable seat. So and then they end up losing. So for the progressives, they need to be careful. They want to cultivate more recruits to run for office, but they need to be careful and pick their battles as to which races they really want to focus on. And to what extent do you feel Biden's political posture towards moving on from COVID-19 is justified? Because that's an issue that we're seeing plenty of momentum, momentum in many states now. And he is coming out from a national federal standpoint and saying we're going to move on from it. Sure. I think, um, you know, that is in part a function of the fact that case numbers are declining and they're declining quickly. I think part of that is a function of the fact that it's become obvious that these are a um, uh, these covid restrictions are a hamstring politically. Uh, They were I think they were certainly in Virginia. And I think that was a warning sign um, to Democrats that they lost that race. But I also think practically it's justified to ease some of these restrictions because of the fact that case numbers are falling. Um, You have seen a number of states that have lifted restrictions well before the federal government, you know, recommended doing so. Even in those states, we've seen a decline in cases. And I think people, after two years, there's so much fatigue and so much eagerness to move on that while the virus is certainly not gone, a great many more people are of the opinion that we have to learn to live with it and move forward. And I think that the administration is reflecting that momentum. What do you make of Republicans breaching decorum during the State of the Union? And was it anything out of the ordinary for this event? It was somewhat out of the ordinary. I was not surprised at, at who it was. There are certain members of Congress who go to Congress less to legislate and more to um get attention and get on television and and go viral on social media. So I was not surprised at who broke decorum. It is somewhat unusual. There was that event, I'm trying to remember, I believe it was the 2010 State of the Union Address, 
where a Republican member of Congress, um, Joe Wilson of South Carolina, shouted, you lie at President Obama after he made a remark, I believe, about the Affordable Care Act not covering health care for immigrants who were in the country illegally. I think that's what it was about. And that was taken as a major uh, breach of decorum to the point that um, uh, it was a it was a news story there for a while. He issued a formal apology. He called the president to apologize to him personally. Um, I, you know, I think it's it's fair to say that in the intervening decade, our politics have not become uh, more polite, and so I, I wasn't surprised. But yes, it was a little unusual, perhaps not so unusual going forward. However, given the state of our politics. After the State of the Union, a lot of headlines said that Biden's approval rating improved substantially. And why do you think that is, Professor? Is it more than just a rally around the flag effect, as many have suggested? For, suggested? Well, the difficulty is it's, it's presidential approval ratings sort of rise and fall based on a lot of, of factors. And there's not a lot of good research that shows that a single speech is going to bump them up a whole lot. So I think it's probably a combination of things. I think that there is, uh, you know, largely a rally around the flag effect. I think that's a big part of it. Um, I think as well that there is, because of the decrease in concern about COVID, that that is reflected in increased approval ratings for the administration. People use the president and the administration a lot as a proxy for how things in the country are going generally even when those things are beyond the administration's control. And it's difficult for a single speech to really affect public opinion one way or the other. So I think it's this sort of confluence of factors that have led to that. Going forward, how confident are you in Biden's unity agenda of tackling opioid addiction, addressing adolescent mental health, increased veteran-based funding, and his cancer moonshot initiative as an agenda with legs to stand on? Um, I don't think that it, uh, you know, I think that the agenda is reasonable. I think that the agenda is the kind that could normally attract bipartisan support. But the difficulty right now is we're in an election year. And the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are both in the posture of uh, going to a metaphorical war with each other. I sort of hesitate to use that term given the real one over in Ukraine. But um, they are sort of in this knockdown, drag out fight. And there is not much of an incentive for the Republican Party to cooperate with the Democrats because they're thinking, they make it the whole loaf of bread after after winning the midterm elections. And so I think this is more about messaging. That is my expectation, that it is largely about messaging. This is a chance for the president and the Democratic Party to say, here's what we're standing on going into this midterm year. Here's why you should return us to Congress. Here's why we should keep the majority. And it's to put Republicans in part on the defensive, you know, because these are things that could normally attract broad bipartisan support. It's the kind of thing that Democrats can point to Republicans as being obstructionist, as not having really any sort of plan to govern, um, but rather to just sort of stand in the way. Um, And so I don't have necessarily hopes for it this year, big hopes, just because in in an election year, they're going to spend so much time away from Congress campaigning anyway. But it could be an agenda that has some legs going forward, perhaps beyond the midterm election. Of course, you can never tell. I always like to hedge my bets. It's possible that some of these items could be acted on at least partially. Um, But, you know, it wouldn't surprise me for the House to take them up. With the Senate, with the filibuster in place, that would be a bit more difficult. And that's where I kind of see things stalling. Certainly an interesting prospect to take, uh, pay attention to as the midterms come in and beyond. Professor Kennedy, thank you so much for joining us this morning to break down Biden's State of the Union address. Thank you. I enjoyed it. 
All right. So that was once again, uh, Professor Joshua Kennedy from Georgia Southern. We talked about the State of the Union. Alexa, any thoughts on the interview? Um, I think he was really well versed and he knew exactly what he was talking about. I think he was the perfect person to really talk to. Well, thank um, you because I booked him. You're welcome. <laughs> I don't know if that was a compliment to you. Yeah. <laughs> it was a compliment to him. You said it was the perfect person to talk to. Well, guess who got him here? You want to pat yourself on the back a little oh, more, I, Danny? I will. I will. You got an inflated ego a little bit. You, you said big head. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I definitely think he made some good points, um, especially with the approval rating uh, increasing. So, um, yeah. And the one thing I thought he was saying about the unity agenda, that's something where he was right in a normal political landscape a lot of these things would find bipartisan support i mean opioid addiction adolescent mental health veteran-based funding ending cancer who doesn't want that right yeah but you know politics politics over you know personal want in that sense and that you'll support you'll go against something because the other guy likes it right that's how that's how it is sometimes in life and i Mm -hmm. think that's unfortunate because if people just it's like that um you ever watch Independence Day? No, with, with, I don't think so. Now, well, there's a speech in the movie where the president... Actually, wait. Maybe. The aliens, Sorry. Will Smith. Yeah. And he starts the speech off by saying, we cannot let our petty differences uh, divide us any longer, something along those lines. And that's a lot of differences are petty. Yeah, I agree. I think politics in general could just be considered extremely petty. It's just like what you said. You take the opposite side because you know that the other person is in support of one thing. Exactly. But now we will move away from politics to a topic Alexa is so excited excited. to talk about. (laughs) And it's about wedding costs, folks. Wedding costs. You think gas is pricey? Talk weddings because everyone's talking about gas, but no one's talking about weddings. Here's some wild wedding prices, folks. The average gown is almost $2,000, $1,900. The average photographer, $2,500. Average food cost per guest, $75. Average price of a gift, so this is the other way around, $200. The average total cost of a wedding in New York today, $65,824. I asked my parents, how much was your wedding? They said it was half that, and they got married in 1999. Now, this article I read from a West Midwestern, um, well, not eh, Western, uh, news station, said that they gave some tips to cut costs. One of them was look for cheaper off-the-rack dresses if you're li- if you're a lady. Uh, plan a year ahead. That can also be a big boon, especially considering that weddings are booming now. Everyone wants, everyone wants to get hitched, apparently. And marry outside of peak wedding season because obviously when demand is high, they'll jack up the prices. When demand is low, oh, wait, that's the reverse, right? whatever the prices will be high either way but try and find a good spot where you can marry somebody and it's not in a bustling season where you have to scramble to find people and people will be more willing to adjust prices to be like well you know everyone's getting married if you're gonna have me at your wedding taking pictures or whatever you gotta raise your price i got you gotta pay me a little bit extra and no matter what it's gonna cost you a small fortune I want to get your thoughts on this whole affair, Alexa. With weddings being so expensive, what do you think about the state of the wedding industry in general? Are you surprised by these prices? No. Are, are, oh, you're not? No, not at all. Okay. Well, I think people who, you know, 
there there are people like me for example people who dream about their wedding for years and years and they want it to be perfect and maybe that comes with a cost and they might be willing to pay that cost so no it doesn't surprise me because people are willing to pay these extreme amounts for what they want if it's something that they've been thinking about forever and ever you know well i just want to break down some further prices for you and for our listeners mostly for you um (laughs) venues between three thousand and seventy five hundred dollars party rentals three thousand seven hundred to five thousand catering can go over fourteen thousand dollars that's a little excessive yeah i know right and think about this not even wedding related things the ring that's very expensive the save the dates you got to send out the invitations the wedding planner if you hire one the dj now my bro okay i know that whenever if or if i ever get married my brother who does a dj has isn't who is an amateur dj he will dj my wedding so that's good he won't do it he will do it for free oh that's a cute idea yes so i'm saving costs on that or maybe <laughs> a band or an ensemble of obviously the photographer a videographer or if you want to do that trend you see on social media where people have the microphones when they get married you ever see those videos oh they, like yeah yeah the where they mic up the groom there. the bride the groom and the groom is there and he starts like hysterically crying have you seen the ones where the the uh groomsmen are all mic'd up as well yeah and they're all just stupidly talking yeah. while they wait up there. think about all the all the prices of the not just the gown the veil or the suit uh maybe makeup services flowers the cake uh, lodging maybe transportation you're ubering people there if you're willing like that okay but i just want to break down the prices lodging is over (laughs) 700 bucks transportation over a thousand dollars the wedding dress seven i mentioned it could be very high the groom sues over 800 bucks and the veil 500 bucks on its own makeup to 400 200 400 dollars the most expensive thing that I didn't mention was the videographer who can go up to 3K. So these tertiary additions to the wedding are very pricey. Yeah. There's certain ones. Actually, I'm not going to lie. The The price of the wedding dress is the only one that really didn't surprise me. And I only say that because I am an avid say yes to the dress watcher. I heard. And Oh, yes. We were talking about that yesterday. Because it's such a good show. And I feel like everyone should watch it. But. Regardless, the average gown, you saying it's 1900 that's the average price. That actually seems really low to me, believe it or not, because I feel like even like a lot of the episodes of Say Yes to the Dress are from the early 2000s. You'd think the prices of the dresses like go up since then, but that's what they were asking for in like 2008 when people were wedding dress shopping. If you look at old, old Say Yes to the Dress videos, so... I expected that number to be a little bit higher. I'm not going to lie to you on that one. Well, it depends what kind of dress we're talking about. If you're getting something off the rack, very basic. That I'm can talking be- Kleinfeld. I'm talking New York City best of the best dresses. And it's probably not the average price. That's where I'm going for my wedding dress. Oh, I I, I want to be on sale. So the dress. why don't you tell everybody your wedding plans? I you, have. Okay. She went so in depth <laughs> yesterday about her wedding plans. Can it, you it tell? It almost scared me. Can you tell that Danny is so over it? I when he told me we were going to talk about weddings on the show, I got so excited because I have had my wedding planned since sophomore year of high school, um, and I spent twenty minutes explaining it to him yesterday. Because if you if you have Pinterest, every I feel like most high school girls make their like I have a group of friends and we all did it at the same time but 
the fact that I can continue to look at my Pinterest board and still be excited by what I put on there years ago makes me think that that's exactly what I want and that's what I'm going to get. But like I know like I'm adding extra expenses because I want to get a bouncy house at my wedding. <laughs> bouncy house. I want a bouncy house. I want a, I want a bridal bouncy house and I want it to be pretty and I think it'll be fun. But I do want an outdoor wedding in like white tent, fairy lights and all that. So I feel like there are ways to to cut those costs um I don't know, like for catering, for example. I don't want to do big, crazy cater. My cousin actually is getting married in October, and they're doing like a barbecue. And I think that's so, so cool. Because, I mean, if they're doing like an outdoorsy, it's they're getting married in a barn. It's a beautiful, beautiful barn up in Utica. Um, so I feel like the catering just doesn't fit it. Like the barbecue makes sense. That makes sense to me. And I think, I think that's kind of the vibe that I'm going for. And I think that's a big cost cut if you, you know, do it yourself. No, I I agree. No, like anything in life, if you're savvy, you can cut costs. There are always ways to cut costs. My mom, I don't know how she does it. She always manages to look for cheap things because she insists on not splurging more than she has to because she's a very savvy shopper. Coupons. My thing, Alexa, which I think if you read my talking points i can't say that i ever really want to be married in such a lavish ceremony at all that's so crazy and i think i would just want to keep it uh, to just a nice simple you know religious context like a church my catholic church because i told you yesterday if somebody came up to me said all right here's the deal if you get married in a wendy's you'll have the best honeymoon you can use all that money for the best honeymoon ever i would i would take that i i wouldn't care because they say you only get married once. That's fine. But the person you marry is the person you choose every day. That's that's the whole point. I don't want to put so much stock in one day because I don't want to have to say, wow, babe, can you believe how cool our wedding was? I want to be like, babe, can you believe how cool our marriage is? Right? Yeah. No, see, that makes sense. But also, I want the party. Okay. Like, the ceremony itself... Person. I, I am a party person. I enjoy parties. I like the loud music. I like everyone having fun. I think it's a great atmosphere. And the ceremony itself, the actual exchanging of vows, I truthfully don't think I could care less about where that is. I'm more excited for the reception. I want people to be able to make memories. My parents put uh, disposable cameras on the table of every wedding guest. They had like two or three cameras and they have just a ton of pictures from that night and like to me like it's like the memory of it you're making memories and even I see what you're saying I'm not saying what you're saying is wrong um because I do think that being able to you know just be in love with your partner is is an amazing thing but I also want those memories of oh my gosh remember our wedding night remember when we did this remember when we did that and you can see like I think social media romanticizes weddings a lot because it does people have the ability to share their nights and then other people are like oh that's a really good idea that could be really cute like one really big trend right now is the painters at the wedding have you seen that the yes. artists yeah. where they uh, hire an artist to come paint like one major scene from the wedding whether it's their first dance or or paint the ceremony itself um that i think is beautiful i think if you want that that's something that you should be willing to splurge on you know if, if you like for me I'm sure there's things that I'll be able to cut and and save money, but there are certain things that I know I want. 
Well, you are weird, and you planned it out as a sophomore in high school, so. Danny, you're, you're, I'm not the only one. I'm telling you I'm not the only one. There's a million people who have done this. <laughs> that scares me. A million? Probably. That's, that's scary. I know a couple. My, my best friend wants to get married in Disney. She has an entire Star Wars wedding planned. In the $20,000 Star Wars hotel? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, we planned this, like I said, sophomore year of high school. That hotel didn't even exist. Wow. Yeah. But I I don't know if I can, here's my thing. If I can really save, let's say it's like, let's say it's the average price. If I can save $64,000 or I can save my parents from spending that much money, I will, you know, like. I can t- hear my mom probably but screaming Danny, out. Danny, it's your Danny, wedding. it's your wedding. You're going to get married <laughs> once. Oh, my God. You're going to get married. I'm going to make sure you have an amazing wedding. I mean, my mom has always been good with making sure, you know, I'm the oldest child, so I get everything first, right? I get, <laughs> I get all the new clothes. I get the new car. Everything. I'm like the, I'm like the lab I'm rat, the but I'm also kid. the spoiled one because I everything that the family gets for the kids, I'm the first one. I, I get, you know, first come, first serve. And- I, I get it. Nothing wrong with having a great wedding, but I uh, but I think you know me well enough, and my mom does too, that I'm not the person. It does not take a lot to make me happy. Okay, so if if your future wife says I want the biggest wedding possible, and she's willing to spend literally over a hundred thousand dollars, and like like go all out, like the big venue, the sparkly dress, the the chandeliers, the diamonds, the giant gem on her finger, you're gonna tell her no. Well. For one thing, I'm buying that gem, so that's her decision. <laughs> Second of all, sure, go for it. As long as you know my contribution, as long as it, the contribution distribution reflect. Wow, it's kind of cool. Contribution, contribution distribution, distribution reflects our interest level because, okay, I saw this really cool stand-up routine yesterday that was like logic when I'm right, and my wife is right. If I'm right and my wife is wrong, I'm wrong. If we're both right. I'm somehow wrong. And if she's wrong and I'm right, I'm wrong. I'm, that's how it works. That's yeah. how it works. See, that's how it works. <laughs> so I would never want to disrupt that. If she wants to go all out, cool. All I'm saying is I don't – I'm not the kind of person who's naturally predisposed to do that. Have I'm, you ever seen the show Four Weddings? No. I feel like you would enjoy it. What is it about? It's literally just there's four women and they all – go to each other's weddings and they rank each other and whoever wins and has the best ratings at the end gets a free honeymoon that's cool i feel like you would enjoy it i feel like you need to sit down and watch it all right that's something that you would enjoy because they that's the thing is they have to go all out for their wedding because they have to win the honeymoon yeah but see it's not a competition but it is for them but social media makes it a competition especially people who marry young it's like wow they got married at 25 and they had this amazing wedding and they they cried when they came down the aisle and they went on the beach and they danced and they had you know fireworks like people that's should, cute and it's cute but it also has this negative effect of making everyone no. think their wedding has to be that amazing i think you're the only one who feels this way weddings are not negative they're I think not neg- they're not negative but you know it's not a competition you get married how you and your partner want to get married i agree but so also don't let other people's weddings make you feel inadequate about yours yeah but like I don't know, like I I want that big, like I want people talking no. about my wedding forever. I was like this for my sweet sixteen when we did my sweet sixteen. I still hold like 
not to not i hold the title for like best sweet 16 in my oh, school gosh. i'm gonna say it because everyone had fun there were no like some people like put rules in place this is what they wanted so i'm not like saying it's bad but like please only wear a certain color because i want to stand out and this and that and that's fine if that's what you want but some people see that as being like oh okay guess i gotta go buy a dress so i feel like for your wedding you just have fun like you don't have to put a bunch of rules in place just just make it a fun time and then when it comes to the money like you want that memorable night that people are going to be talking about forever so spend a little extra money who yeah. cares we'll you see. instantly become the favorite friend yeah we'll see let's see let me let me try and get engaged first danny i would love to be invited to your wedding in a wendy's all right oh that'd be awesome do i get free frosties yes of course okay um and I hope I get to go to your wedding whenever my it is. giant, your my giant. giant wedding with a bouncy house. Yeah. You'll be invited. Don't All worry. Right. Well, that'll do it for today's show. A nice, lighthearted discussion to end things off. Man, I cannot believe it's already Thursday. The week started started off very slow, but now it's just going so fast. But the week is not over yet. On Friday tomorrow, Blaze <laughs> and Luke will hold it down, ending the week strong for another week of one and wickle call. From Danny, from, I'm Danny, from Alexa, <laughs> from Alexa, myself, and Lauren, have a great rest of your day, and the morning wake up call will be back tomorrow.